If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 616. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Or you can just go at Brian McClanahan for all those accounts, too. If you go to brianmcclanahan.com, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. Purchase a course there or 20. That's how you keep this podcast free of charge. Also, click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com if you want to throw a few pennies my way. Click on the shop tab if you want my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And I mean all kinds of cool stuff. Clocks, skins for your electronic devices, stickers, wall plates, shirts. I mean, there's just great stuff over there. So go ahead and get those items. Also, the best way to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. To the podcast, I should say. And, of course, that lets people know you like it and share it around on social media. That's a great way to get people listening to the show and thinking locally and acting locally. I appreciate all of your support. I appreciate you sending me those show requests. We're wrapping up this week with a piece by John Grove. And this is based sort of on a show request. I've had several people ask about the list of amendments from Mr. Beat. Mr. I've never listened to Mr. Beat, but apparently he's pretty popular on YouTube. Um, I, I take that back. I listened to a few minutes of something he did on presidents one time. It was ridiculous. And so I went out and looked at this for a second. And I, I actually did a show on amendments I would propose uh, not long ago. But I thought, well, let's do one on a proposed list of amendments from someone that I actually like. And that will be John Grove at Law and Liberty, uh, which is from the Liberty Fund. It's lawliberty.org, great website. But this is from December of 2021. It was wrapping up the year, and John Grove decided to give a list, a Christmas wish list, so to speak, of amendments that would be great for the Constitution in his mind. And the reason I want to do this is I, I agree with most of this. There's one that I can think of that would cause some problems. But I want to go through this piece and I'll talk about parts of this and maybe where he could have expanded a little bit. But he said, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas and Law and Liberty's November Forum, headlined by John McGinnis and Mike Rappaport, may have visions of constitutional amendments dancing in their readers' heads. All of the forum's participants agreed on the desirability of Americans once again taking up the mantle of constitutional self-government and deciding for themselves what law is to govern them. Now again, looking at the center is... I think the wrong way to do things, and I think you know John Grove agrees with federalism working from the bottom up, but if you got to reform the center, then there might be some things you want to do. I mentioned some restrictions on the executive branch, which is, of course, a major problem. His would be to tighten some of the language on other parts of the Constitution, which is why I want to go through this. He says, at the end, at the time of the year when children are compiling their wish list to send off to the North Pole, why not put together a constitutional amendment wish list? If St. Nick could draw up some New constitutional language down the chimney. What would be most important for restoring a healthy, self-governing federal republic? 
Some of these ideas are for restorative amendments that would attempt to undo damage done to the original Constitution by the Supreme Court or the practice of the federal government. Others are changes made in the spirit of conservative reform. In keeping with most of our constitutional tradition, none are simply constitutional resolutions to contentious policy questions, however important they may be. Rather, they are structural and procedural provisions, just like the ones we used to know. I also don't presume to write the specific text of an amendment. Policy wonks can check the list twice, and maybe some of these ideas will turn out not to be so nice when we try to put them into practice. I merely offer some ideas for fruitful discussion. So if all you want for Christmas is constitutional self-government, here's a grown-up Christmas list. So the first, limiting the Commerce Clause. This is a really good idea. The Commerce Clause on its own was not dangerous. The Commerce Clause, if we followed the way Roger Sherman thought it should be interpreted, was simply interstate commerce and international commerce, right? So the general government can regulate interstate commerce, but by regulating interstate commerce, what he said, it would be free, right? We'd have a free trade zone in the United States. That was the meaning of interstate commerce. And so if we actually followed that meaning, the Commerce Clause would be, I mean, benign. We have a free trade zone. Everyone recognizes the United States government should deal with international trade. We should have one voice when it goes to international trade. But we know how this has been abused. It's been abused, I mean, tremendously abused by the government and by, of course, the Supreme Court. So that anything you do can be considered commerce. Anything. Anything that's even intrastate. And even if it's individuals crossing state lines, that's considered interstate commerce. So if I go to, if I'm a citizen of one state and I try to stay in a hotel of another state, well, that's interstate commerce. Now, that's not what the founding generation considered interstate commerce. But that's exactly what the Supreme Court has interpreted as. And so people now are interstate commerce. That creates a really difficult situation because this opens a door to the general government regulating anything that might be considered commerce. And of course, it goes all the way back to the 19th century in the Marshall Court. <clears throat> he says, obviously, in granting commerce the power to regulate interstate commerce, the framers and ratifiers actually meant any mundane detail of life that can possibly be linked to a state line, right? Well, maybe not. The court has ever so slowly walked back some of the most egregious uses of the Commerce Clause, but there's still a long way to go. An amendment that specified that interstate com commerce actually means what it says, commerce that is interstate, will be transformational. As a purely practical matter, this will probably require some clear and limited expansion of congressional power to cover other areas that the bogus Commerce Clause interpretation has to, to this point been made to cover, but that most people would be unwilling to cede. We might recall old man Filburn and exhort, my wheat, my choice. It has a nice ring to it. No strings attached. There's one that uh, allows you to have mandates, unfunded mandates, or funded mandates, on federal legislation. Now, this was actually called New Federalism. The Nixon administration was certainly a proponent of this. You, you would have this money. You'd say, here, states, you do this, but you have to do these things, and here's the money to do it. I don't care how you spend it. You just got to spend it. And there's, there's mandates. Now, this can go beyond that. You can have mandates that go beyond the legislation. you got to do X, Y, and Z. But that's a distortion of federalism. So this is kind of a federalism amendment. He says, The federal government has also used the spending power to control state and local decisions and even restrict the exercise of protected constitutional rights by attaching conditions to federal funding. It is, as one book recently put it, a process of purchasing submission. Now, I talked about this on a previous podcast. And... Um, 
I mentioned that states can reject these things. If you want, just don't take the money. If you don't take the money, you don't have any of the mandates. So it's just like when we had the Marshall Plan for the world. If you want the money from the Marshall Plan, you got to do exactly what the United States government says you have to do. And of course, there are strings attached. You're becoming a puppet regime of the United States. The states could do the exact same thing and say, we don't want it. COVID relief money, we don't want it. Of course, respect the limits placed upon us by our venerable constitution and authorized by the sovereign people, but it would be a shame if something were to happen to your transportation money, quote-unquote. The tactics has been used for everything from a federal drinking age to higher ed policies to limitations on free speech. Most recently, it's been used to put limitations on state tax policy through COVID relief. Some Republicans like it, too. If Congress wants to give the states money, so be it. That money can't be a bribe or a threat used to control things that Congress is not constitutionally authorized to legislate on. In NFIB versus Sebelius and elsewhere, the court has also taken tentative steps in this direction. Let the Constitution declare it louder for the people in the back. If the power is not given, it is reserved. So, great point. And, of course, he quotes, he, he links there to the Statehouse Yard speech from James Wilson, which, by the way, I cover in my Originalist Papers course at McClanahan Academy. If you want to get my thoughts on that particular speech, go over there, hop over there and get that class. You've got the bundle, which is a great deal, but you can get, that's an actually um, part one of that four-part class where I go over James Wilson in the Statehouse Yard speech. Specifying the taxing power, robbers giveth and robbers taketh away, even as the Chief Justice with one hand advanced potential limitations on the Commerce Clause and spending power in NFIB versus Abilius, he practically mooted the point by making the taxing power a catch-all. Eat your broccoli or be ready to hear from the IRS. And robbers was hardly the first to find such uses for taxation. The power to tax is the power to destroy, John Marshall declared when striking down a state tax. That, of course, would be McCulloch v. Maryland, which, by the way, was one of the most egregious Supreme Court decisions in the history of the United States. The same goes for federal ones. An amendment that specifies precise methods of allowable federal taxation. Is it getting carried away to suggest eliminating the income tax, Grove asks, could limit the social and economic micromanagement that can be undertaken through the power. Non-delegation. I mean, look, let me back up to taxation. This is a no-brainer, right? The income tax was at one point declared unconstitutional, so we get the 16th Amendment. But is that the most efficient way to tax people? Is it, is it a, you know, once you add an amendment, then you get to where it's not unconstitutional to have an amendment. Um, but regardless, is this the proper way to go out and make sure people pay taxes? We know a lot of people don't pay any taxes, and the way that the tax system is structured We've got over 50% of the population now not paying any income tax. It doesn't mean they don't pay taxes. Every time they fill up a gallon of gas in their car, they're paying taxes or some other federal fees for things. Everybody pays federal taxes, just not as much as other people. And so when you have this smaller shrinking percentage of the population paying all the taxes, that, uh, that creates a strain. And so all the income taxes, I should say. And so should there be a better way? Would it Would it be better to have some type of you know, sales tax, something like that. Of course, that puts all the burden back on businesses because then they have to contribute to the tax. So there's a lot of things going on here. Founding generation would have said we should have such a limited government, you wouldn't need all this tax money. I mean, we had a tariff. That was it. So you know, the more government you get, the more taxes you have to pay. And we see that all the time because you get more bureaucracy. Non-delegation. The court, in theory, affirms the principle of non-delegation deriving from the words of Article 1. 
All legislative powers here in granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States, but it has not invoked it for nearly a century, allowing Congress to hand off its legislative responsibility and a host of issues to executive agencies. This really is a problem. If you want to look at where everything went wrong, and this is why you know, the Congress has screwed up America as much as the court and the presidency, but the Congress has done it because they keep punting their responsibility to the executive branch. And so the executive branch, through bureaucrats and unelected people, goes out and legislates all the time. And that's unconstitutional. So Grove says, not only does this, under, does this undermine representative self-government by making America a nation governed by bureaucrats, it also contributed to the institutional rot in the legislative branch, with congressmen more than happy to hand off the more difficult legislative responsibilities so they can have more time to post on Insta. Could we come up with a firm rule that dictates the sort of substantive policy choices that must come straight from the horse's mouth? And he says this could be difficult, but I mean, it's pretty straightforward. All legislative powers. So if the, if the executive branch is engaged in legislative powers, then they're unconstitutional. It's simple as that. So if, there's, if the president, the executive branch, does anything that might be construed as a legislative power, setting any kind of rules, for example, that's legislative. You know what? They can't do it. And, and Congress can't delegate that to another branch of government. They can't do it. It has to set the rules because they're the ones who are elected, not bureaucrats. Repeal of U.S. term limits versus Thornton. Term limits have been on conservative wish lists for a long time, but there is a sizable contingent on the right that questions their usefulness. I am personally torn on the question and would actually say I lean against their utility. And I agree with Grove. I don't think term limits are going to do much of anything. If you have somebody that's really good in office, you want to continue their, their time there. But on the other hand, you know, when you got bad people, it, what, you're going to... Let's, let's think about this for a second. Let's say you had term limits and Maxine Waters was term limited out. What are you going to get to replace her? Somebody is probably just as bad in that district. It's not going to be anybody better. Or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or some of these other... I mean, what are you going to get to replace them? On the other hand, you've got somebody really good. Maybe it's maybe you're a lefty and you love Bernie Sanders, right? You term limit him out, and then there's no more Bernie Sanders in Congress. Now, you could say, as a conservative, hell yes, we don't want Bernie Sanders there. But are you going to get anybody better than Bernie Sanders? Probably not when it comes to the policies they're going to advocate. I mean, so at the end of the day, now what you would do in that regard is keep someone like uh, someone who is a media hog like Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or heck, if you're on the left, you know, Ted Cruz or something. It would keep them away from the Congress once they serve out their six years or 12 years. I mean, is it four terms or five terms in the Congress? Ten years, is that long enough? Or maybe two terms in the Senate? You keep all that away. And so this is what Grove says. The case for term limits is obvious. Nobody likes the idea of a career politician taking up residence in the halls of Congress for half a century. But the problem is that freshman lawmakers are no better. In fact, they're often worse. And they may be more inclined to treat the institution merely as a springboard to higher office or increasingly to celebrity. But this kind of debate shows what Thornton took away. The right of the people to sort out the question for themselves. Thornton was wrong. The Constitution doesn't forbid term limits, and it doesn't. That could be made explicit and the states be made free to decide. So I agree. I mean, to have the ability for the states to pick this up. Uh, but the freshman lawmakers are usually pretty bad. 
Now, one thing, of course, that would be great, this should be a constitutional amendment outlawing air conditioning in government buildings in Washington, D.C. You want to make it to where people don't want to be there? Cut the air conditioning. Cut it and make them suffer uh, because it would be awful. Nobody would want to be there in the summertime. You would have no legislative business in the summer. People would go home. And that's the best place for a legislator to be is at home. Supreme Court appointments. For now, at least, conservatives are pretty happy with the Supreme Court. There's no denying that it has problems, especially when it comes to the nomination of justices. I've written elsewhere in favor of a couple of significant reforms that the courts make up, including a proposal once floated by now Senator Josh Hawley for filling the court with a rotating slate of judges from the lower courts. Whether it's this or something better, we should have a system that doesn't bring up the potential for crisis every time there's a vacancy. Our constitutional order shouldn't rely on the right person dying during the right presidency. And I agree there. The problem is the court has too much power. So you know what you do? You force the judges to ride the circuit again. You make it difficult for them. So it's a real choice. Do I really want to take this job? It's going to be a heck of a lot of work. And the Congress eliminates all the appellate courts and everything else. It's just the Supreme Court. You make it to where there is one court for the United States and you get rid of all the other stuff and you let the state courts handle all this stuff. That would be the beautiful part. That could be the better situation than simply how we elect or select, I should say, Supreme Court justices. Repeal 17. This has also been a popular talking point in the right for some time. No one can claim with a straight face that the direct election of senators gets us the best and brightest. Appointment probably wouldn't be a panacea, but adding an extra degree of separation between the upper house and the cesspool of mass electoral politics couldn't hurt. Now, even before the 17th Amendment, states were canvassing, meaning there were, I mean, this is Lincoln Douglas, right? I mean, the state selected Stephen Douglas, not the people of the state, but they were debating because essentially the state legislature was going to pick the person that the, the, in canvassing that the people wanted from the state. So there's no reason for them to debate other than in front of the state legislature, but that's what happened. So um, the 17th is not necessarily something that's going to be repealing that is going to save the federal republic. Uh, But having the state legislatures pick the senators, you would see a different makeup of the Senate, and it would make the state legislature battles more important, right? Who controls the state legislature would become a pretty important issue in American politics because they would determine the makeup of the Senate, as it should have been, as the founding generation talked about, the Senate represented the states in their sovereign or their political capacity. War powers, another instance of bringing us back to the original meaning of the Constitution, Congress shall have the power to declare war. At a time when the United States insists on carrying the mantle of global leadership, the very least we can ask is that our representatives make the decisions. Some improvement on the War Powers Act, as framework is not enough, enshrined into the Constitution, should make it Much more difficult for presidents to commit sons and daughters to fight in whatever global conflict is in the national interest of this week. And again, I I agree with this entirely. When I did my list in nine presidents who screwed up America, the point was to limit the president's power here. Because Congress has also punted that onto the executive branch. And last but not least, a balanced budget amendment. Almost all the states can do it. Germany can do it. But it's too radical for the federal government, right? Will it be a radical change from the D.C. status quo, which both parties have every incentive to maintain? Beyond the intrinsic good of fiscal discipline, a balanced budget amendment would also be a check on a host of meddlesome social and economic experience, the experiments the federal government undertakes every year. Enthusiasm for such projects wanes when the bill comes due. Now, here's the problem I have with this. Let's say we had a balanced budget right now. What's going to happen? Balanced budget amendment right now. 
We've got massive, massive gaps in funding, deficits. Deficit spending is something we've been doing for a long time. So what is the Congress going to do? They're not going to cut spending. They're going to raise taxes astronomically. right? So this is exactly what would happen. Now, when that does happen, the people are going to get ticked off. and They'll probably remove those individuals. But generally, when there's a gap, they're, going to ra- they're not going to cut spending. They're going to raise revenue by raising taxes to do it. So this is the real problem with the balanced budget amendment. I don't see it as something that's going to be good long-term because I think it's going to create more headaches and it's going to be a disaster ultimately. Something we really don't want to do because of the fact that you're going to see higher taxes because of it. But anyways, it's a nice thought. The real issue should be what we should do here is go back to earmarks. Every single thing the Congress spends money on needs to be earmarked. If they want to spend a million dollars on studying the reproductive habits of rats, it should be outlined in the budget. This is what we're spending a million dollars on. And the public should be able to see all of this spending anytime they want to see it. And we should go through it and know the Congress is wasting money. Because you know what? They're wasting money every single day of the week. And so if that's the case, let's cut that spending. We have enough revenue. Revenue goes up every year. We just spend more than we take in. Of course, there won't be amendments in America this Christmas, he says. Indeed, once you grow up and find out the least, the less magical way this sort of present gets to be under the tree, it makes you anticipate a blue Christmas. But it doesn't hurt to think about the structural problems our political order deals with and some potential ways that might be remedied, if only in our dreams. Right. So, again, a nice list. I think uh, the guy, Mr. Beat, had things like getting 16-year-olds to vote. I mean, that's ridiculous. Look, I, I'm all for thinking about uh, voting, but it shouldn't be going that way. It should be going in the other direction. Maybe we don't need 18-year-old voting. Maybe we, we need some kind of civics test or something to ensure that people know what they're doing before they vote, at least basic civics history, even if it's not the right, even if I don't agree with the questions or agree with the, with the answers of some of these things, but certainly a basic civics uh, approach would be something good. That's not unconstitutional. Uh, but certainly, I mean, we should have this conversation about who can and cannot vote. You know, of course, I think Beat wants to abolish the Electoral College, which is stupid. I mean, this is typical leftist nonsense. But I like these amendments by John Grove for the most part. I think that that's a right step in the right direction. And, um, you know, some of these things would do well to help the federal republic uh, and retain that original federal republic. So. Hope you enjoyed this week of the Brian McClanahan Show. If you want to get me for another time, one more podcast, head over to abbevilleinstitute.org. Get my podcast over there on all things Southern. If not, I'll see you next week on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.